a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the, the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. But before we get started with today's podcast, here's a short message from the Say the Damn Score marketing team. Hey, marketing team, get over here. I'm on my way. What's up? You need to tell our great listeners about the Critique Crew service. Oh, I'd be happy to. Say the Damn Score now offers a critique service. You send us 8 to 10 minutes of your work, and we have one of our nine expert broadcasters listen to your work and provide detailed written feedback of your strengths, weaknesses, and places you can improve. Many coaching and critique services are expensive, not ours. For just over 30 bucks, you can receive a professional critique of your work. Whether you're a young broadcaster coming up short in the job market or a veteran trying to reach the next level, for the price of a happy hour tab, you could be on your way to becoming a better broadcaster. Visit saythedamscore.com slash critique-crew or click on the Critique Crew link in the show notes. Now back to the show. Hey, production team, get back over here. I'm Logan Anderson, host of the original Say the Damn Score podcast and a play-by-play broadcaster. I'm recording from the Say the Damn Score studio, a.k.a. my spare bedroom and wife's music room in Beersford, South Dakota. This podcast is about sportscasting and getting the stories of sportscasters from around the country. This is episode number 54, and right now I'm honored to be joined by one of the fastest rising young talents in the industry, Adam Amin of ESPN. I'd like to break the ice with a nice, easy question right out of the gate. What was the moment in your life when you knew that you wanted to go into broadcasting? It wasn't when I was younger. It wasn't when I was a kid. Uh, I had some moments when I was like eight or nine years old where I, you know, I, I, I delved into, you know, some of the things that a lot of sportscasters do when they're when they're younger and coming up, you know, I would turn the TV off and call play by play to my video games or call play by play of the baseball game or, or whatever that may be. Uh, when I was eight, I would get up in front of my music class and do a two minute sports report every week, mostly talking about the Chicago Blackhawks, but it was never anything that I was convinced was part of a career. Uh, I didn't really start broadcasting until I was in high school and I did it very uh, casually, uh, did not take it very seriously at all. It wasn't anything I was on my radar. I didn't know what I really wanted to do in college. So, uh, when I got the opportunity to go to college and I walked into the radio station, uh, my freshman year, my first day on campus at Valparaiso university, I looked around and thought, you know, this might be something cool. And then the first time I called a game it was a mock broadcast when I was a freshman. It was a Valpo basketball game, and it was just so fun trying to keep up with everything that was happening. That's when I knew that it was probably something I was in in it. You know, I was in it for the long haul at that point. I think that's when I knew. I think I was 19 years old, uh, January of 2006. I think is when I really knew this was something I wanted to pursue for for a career. 
Interesting. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on, outside of the fact that you're one of the better young broadcasters in the nation right now, is that I don't want to say we have a unusual connection, but your first job out of college, if I'm correct, was in Spirit Lake, Iowa, right? Yes, absolutely. In, uh, in the Okaboji area, Spirit Lake, KUOO Radio. And you, there's no way you could possibly know this, but I am one of the people that you beat out for that job. <laughs> No kidding. Are you serious? I had no idea. I had zero idea. It was such an interesting position, too. And and, and Logan, you might remember this, too. The guy who uh, we were looking to replace uh, was was battling illness. He was battling cancer for uh, quite some time. He'd been there for a really, really long time. I think about 20 or 25 years at that radio station, or at least in that area doing radio, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, was beloved in that area. So it was a kind of a strange position to, to take over. And, uh, though the people there were just so welcoming and they were so friendly and, you know, some of my close friends to this day are, are from that town, but I had no idea. How about that? What a great little connection we have. I know. And I just, I remember I interviewed for the job and I came back and I actually went on a trip to Las Vegas for the first time, right <laughs> after that interview figured, you know what, uh, Maybe I'll get lucky in Vegas and come home and get lucky with a new job. And then I I got back, and they're like, nope, we're uh, giving it to you, Adam Amin. And I'm like, who the hell is Adam Amin? Some college kid from Valpo. I hope I hope, I hope there's no ill will or anything like no, that. No, 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 no. I'd, like I'd like to think that, I'm, that, that uh, since I'm a guest of your podcast, that I, I'd like to think bygones are bygones at this point. Nope, I just brought you on here to, <laughs> to berate you. No. <laughs> Bygones are definitely bygones, and it, it totally makes 100% sense uh, in hindsight. So I just thought that that was fun. One of the things I did want to talk to you about, you touched on it a little bit, was your very first job was a little bit of a difficult one because you were replacing a guy who, if he hadn't passed away yet, he was he was going to very soon. He'd been battling cancer for a long time. What was the difficult part about starting your first professional job in that situation? You know, I think the biggest thing for me was to not try to overstep anybody's, uh, overstep any bounds. I didn't want to assume that I was part of the community or anything like that. I, I just wanted to do, pull my head down and do my job. And hopefully if people liked what I was doing, they would let me know if they didn't like what I was doing, they, they'd let me know. And, and I would, take the criticism as, as it came and try to be constructive about it and not to take anything too personally. If, uh, if, if the job wasn't working out or anything like that. But again, like I said, the people there were so friendly and they were so welcoming and and that made the transition certainly much, much easier than I'm sure it could have been. And I'm, and I'm sure that it has been in other places. Uh, uh, you know, the people that you work with, and I believe this to this day at every job I've been a part of and every company I've been a part of, the people you work with make the job great. And uh, the job there in, in Spirit Lake was was great because of the people there. And they were so uh, understanding of, of what my situation was and, and how uh, just how welcoming they were. And, and they knew I wasn't trying to replace anybody. I was just trying to do the job. And because of that, it made me feel much more confident and much more comfortable and that's a testament to the to the people there in in Spirit Lake, Iowa, and the surrounding area, and and all the people that that were nice enough to give me that type of opportunity. I know you didn't stay there very long. How many months was it? 
think it was about eight months, if I'm not mistaken. Just a, a brutal winter, but a lot of work and a lot of games to call, a lot of basketball, uh, a lot of on-air time, a lot of chances to figure out how to suck at this job. Like, I, I tell that to, to young broadcasters all the time. Like, listen, go out and just do it, and you're going to be terrible, and that's okay. You're allowed to be awful at this when you first start. You you have to go out there and work the kinks out. I'm a big stand-up comedy fan, and I, and I used to date a comedian, and she would tell me, about her first gigs and how she'd go out and just bomb on stage. And I, I just thought, wow, this is kind of like what, what it is for us. I mean, it's a different medium. It's a different uh, set of context for what uh, the job actually is, but it's okay to go out there and just be bad at it and learn what, what is good and what's not good and what's your voice and what works with your personality and, and what you're supposed to sound like and how to pace and how to learn rhythm and how to tell a story and, and how to weave in and out of different things. And, and that's what the, the, the most important thing was for me in that position in that short amount of time was just to do as much as possible so that I could get a lot of the kinks out and just learn how to be bad at it before I could learn how to be better at it. Did you get to spend any time during the summer there? Oh, God, I wish I could have. I mean, all most... I read about was how great of a summer town Okaboji, Iowa was and like, Playboy at one point uh, in the recent history had like named it as one of the 10 best summer towns in the country or something like that. And everybody's got a lake house and everybody's drinking and partying on the lake and going to bars and, and all the restaurants open up. And I was there for the strict period of time between like October and April, where it was like 80 inches of cumulative snow and it was cold all the time. And I was driving between spirit lake and spencer and pocahontas and uh just trying to get my bearings at hartley and i mean just all these small towns in the surrounding area and that's what it was for me it wasn't the uh, the fun party town that i'd read so much about <laughs> during the summertime that's too bad it really is a lot of fun there <laughs> give us the cliff notes version of your next couple of stops on your way to espn i believe it was in gary indiana your next spot uh, I actually, I was in Gary the year prior uh, going before I went to Iowa. So I had, I had the job in Gary with the Railcats, an independent league team um, between my junior and senior year of college and after my senior year of college. And then after that is when I went to Iowa. Uh, after I was uh, finished up in Iowa, I actually left there to go take a job as a number one broadcaster for the Somerset Patriots in the Atlantic League. Uh, so I did two full seasons of minor league baseball there. And in between, I worked for the Horizon League Network, which was uh, a place, the or an, uh, um, uh, I should say, a uh, an entity that was established when I was still in school. So I had met some of the people that were in charge there. They gave me a lot of freelance work, uh, which in turn, because they were working with the NCAA, they gave me a lot of freelance work doing like Division II basketball and Division II softball and tennis and uh, just various gigs. I was doing sideline reporting for the Horizon League Network during their conference tournament. And I was working for Valpo, uh, my alma mater. I was doing not the play-by-play. -play, I was the color analyst for football and men's basketball home games. And I was the studio host for the road games. So I would drive. Uh, I was living with my parents at the time. I would drive from Addison, Illinois, about 75 miles to Valpo, they pay me a hundred bucks a game. I would do the studio hosting or call the game. 
and then I would drive 75 miles back home. And uh, that's what I would end up doing during uh, during that interim between Spirit Lake, Iowa and getting to ESPN. I was doing a lot of that. I was doing a lot of freelance. I was doing high school football and basketball play by play. I was filling in everywhere I could. I filled in for Alabama women's basketball. Uh, I filled in on minor league baseball broadcast uh, uh, before my season started. So just every possible rep I could I could muster up, I was trying to get so I could a pay some bills and b just keep doing it. So I was reading up on you to try to just kind of figure some things out, do a little bit of prep work into this, and it sounded like you're eventually ending up in in the ESPN stable had a lot to do with the relationship you had with Ian Eagle. How did you cultivate that relationship from, you know, being calling high school and Horizon League games in, in the Midwest? And how, how did you make that connection and how did you get it to work for your advantage? Uh, when I was in my first year in New Jersey uh, for Somerset, uh, there is uh, every year a, an event uh, that Ian Eagle and Bruce Beck, who is the NBC New York sports anchor, a tremendous, tremendously talented guy. And they do a sports casting camp for like teenagers, basically like ages like I want to say it's like 11 to 17 or something. So part of that sports casting camp, they would bring all the campers to our baseball stadium, to TD Bank Ballpark. And they would buy out all the suites for the night and everybody would kind of do a mock broadcast. They would pair up in twos. It was basically like the end of the sports casting camp for that week. And the best students deemed by Ian and Bruce would actually call a half inning each of play-by-play on the air with me as their color guy. So they would jump in the booth and I would call the game as their analyst. And that was their opportunity to be on the air. And it was a great opportunity for them. And I still keep in contact with a couple of the kids, which I think is just awesome. And they were uh, also bringing me in to the camp the day before to just talk about the team and kind of where I'm from, which at the time, I mean, I didn't really have a whole lot of things to talk about. I was just trying to be nice and, and do something cool. I mean, Ian asked me to do it. And I'm a huge fan of Ian Eagles. And I said, of course, I'd love to do that. And through that, Ian, for whatever reason, and I will never understand why, I'll never fully grasp why he did, but for some reason, he took a liking to me. He took an interest in me and was so, so supportive. And Bruce was the same way too. But I I connected with more as a play-by-play guy. And Ian just said, anything you need, if you need anything, don't hesitate. And I, I said, okay, sure, that'd be awesome. And he was the first person of that stature that had ever reached out and said, hey, if you ever need anything, don't hesitate to ask. So... I sent him some tapes and I said, Hey, if it's not too much trouble, can you maybe listen to it? And he was beyond great. And I still have saved the critiques that he sent me and said, this is what you can work on. This is great. Don't lose this. Uh, You can get better at this. I like this. I don't like this. And just his honest criticism meant so much to me. And I told him, Hey, I really appreciate that. And he actually reached out and said, "Uh, when the season's over, I have a game in Green Bay in October. I know you're in Chicago. If you want to come up, you can shadow me and Dan Fouts. And I said, are you kidding me? That'd be amazing. So uh, he let me shadow him. And that was an incredible experience to go to Lambeau Field, a place I'd never been. I'd never been to an NFL stadium. And that was the first time I'd been to an NFL stadium. And I was watching Packers Dolphins and sitting in the CBS booth and going into the truck for a quarter and and just observing these these 
incredible people on this technical crew and, and also eyeing in the booth and just watching them do their job. And I was so enamored with it. And I thought, yeah, this is, this is it. And Ian didn't stop there. He, and sorry if I'm rambling, Logan, it's just like, he's done so much. And my, my apologies if it's, uh, if it's kind of turning into a, a, a weird goose chase here, but it's a podcast. He, it's supposed to turn into a weird <laughs> goose chase. Uh, he was just so supportive. And he said, uh, you know, if he, if I, I actually asked him once if, if I, if he knew how I could go about getting NBA radio tape, I was trying to get a, uh, get some basketball tape and he set it up so that I could go to Milwaukee and get a spot on radio row. And I just brought my equipment with me and I taped, myself doing an NBA broadcast and that ended up being like part of my resume tape uh, for ESPN, just having a little bit of radio on there to show that I could do it. And uh, he eventually uh, dropped my name to his agent, which is something he did not have to do. It was totally unprovoked. And one day out of the blue, I, I ended up making contact with, with Ian's agent. And he said, Ian won't stop talking about you. Uh, do you have something you can send me? And I sent this agency the worst possible resume tape i think anybody could have put together at that point but for whatever reason this guy looked at it and said yeah i see what he's talking about i'd love to talk to you and that led to a relationship with this agent who is now my agent and has been for the last uh gosh almost seven years now at this point and and it was all because of i am and because he took an interest and and was supportive and didn't do anything that that was going to be a huge burden to him and I certainly would have felt terrible asking but he just did it because he like I said I'll never understand why fully he did it but he took an interest in me and, and he was so supportive in that regard and I owe as much to him as as anybody and, uh, and there are a lot of great people that nobody does this on their own and I have a million people I could probably uh, point to and say they had an influence or they did something and this person was supportive but I and as much as any was the guy who kind of set me up for for a, a spot he, he he set it up in a way that was going to get me some kind of opportunity and then he knew it was up to me to make the most of it so that's an interesting that's a great story first of all but it just shows the importance of when someone says hey you know what if you need anything don't hesitate to ask the importance of following up because if you hadn't done that things could have turned out really different i i remember after the, I want to say it was actually after talking to the actual campers, I remember walking away and just saying, Hey, thanks guys. Really appreciate it. And I was walking away and I thought, I can't, I can't do that. If I, if I don't take five minutes to go up and just talk to Ian and ask him a couple of questions and, and, and just kind of pick his brain a little bit, I'm going to regret that. Cause how often do you get the opportunity to do something like that, to pick the brain of, Somebody I think, especially today, and it's only, you know, the, over the years, my opinion of him has only been in, uh, more solidified. But even at the time, I thought clearly one of the great underrated, as far as I'm concerned, broadcasters that we've had in the last 20 years in television or radio. And if I don't ask him some questions and try to pick his brain and learn something, I'm really going to regret that. So that's I remember just having that thought and going, no, I got to go back up to him and talk to him. And, and I did. And that's kind of. I think he appreciated that. I think he understood that I, I appreciated that moment. And he, like I said, was just super supportive because of that. So there's a couple other things I want to touch on from, from that uh, kind of train of thought is, are any of those teenagers that you worked with 
at the broadcasting camp still in the business? You said a couple of them stay in touch with you. Are any of them doing good things at this point, or has there not been enough time? No, you know, a, a couple of kids, uh, you know, this kid Ryan actually ended up going to the University of Michigan and interning for Sports Illustrated, and he was doing stuff for the Big Ten Network, and it was just really cool to see, you know, even that moment. And 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 I'll say this just to connect all of it, because of how Ian was to me when I first started. I I take a lot of pride in trying, and I'm not I'm not the best in the world at it, and. And I wish I was I was better and I wish I were more consistent about it. But I try as hard as possible to answer every email and a- answer any questions and and do interviews with anybody I can, because not, you know, I don't you know, and, and I'm not to sound pretentious here. I don't need a spotlight anymore. Like, I'm lucky. I'm so happy that I get to just do the job. And it happens to be at a, at a pretty high level. And I'm, I, I feel so lucky to do that. But I remember what it was like when. Dan Schulman was nice enough to do an interview on my college radio station. I remember Tom Leach, the University of Kentucky voice, being nice enough to take time to record an interview with me before a game. And I just remember those gestures meaning so much to me when I was 19, 20, 21, 22 years old that I don't ever want to take that for granted. So if somebody asks, it was because of how those guys treated me that I knew I should pay that forward. And it's because they set it a tremendous example for how to be a professional in this business. So your first day walking onto the campus at Bristol uh, for ESPN, was there a, you know, holy bleep, I'm here moment where you were just kind of in awe or shock, or was it uh, very natural? Uh, so my first day, it wasn't on campus because we were uh, we were in a seminar in Connecticut. It was at a hotel, but this was technically my first day, you know, with with ESPN. And every year we have a college football seminar, and it's in August, the month before the season starts. And they have every play-by-play announcer and every analyst and every producer and every director and every reporter and everybody that's involved directly with college football uh, at you know at this hotel at this conference at this seminar. And I remember walking down the stairs that morning for the first day of the seminar. And I was just in awe because, oh my God, there's Brent Musburger and there's Kirk Herbstreet and there's Aaron Andrews. And, uh, you know, I, I just remember looking at them and going, oh my God, that's the crew. Like that's them. Oh man. Uh, that's Bob with shoes. And that's Dave Pash. Uh, these are all the announcers that I was looking up to and watching call the big games and calling college hoops and college football and the NBA. And, and just, I remember thinking, I can't believe I'm in the same room with these guys. And I was looking left and right and not really paying attention. And bam, I smacked right into the chest of Urban Meyer. And that was when Urban was taking time off. He took that year in 2011 to jump on the broadcast crew. I think it was with Dave Pash and Chris Spielman, if I'm not mistaken. And I just remember smacking right into Urban Meyer and going, oh, sorry, coach. And he goes, oh, it's all no problem. And I was so embarrassed. But that was like day one. That was like the uncool kid who just moved into town trying to figure out where I was going to eat lunch and just try not to upset anybody. And it was just an incredible moment. I remember sitting behind Sean McDonough and just listening to him crack up the room, making jokes. And, and I remember watching Kirk and Todd Blackledge go up and talk about college football. And I remember listening to producers uh, give a bunch of advice to all the announcers. How do they react or how do they interact with certain people? And, I just remember trying to soak it all in because I was just in awe of what was happening. How long did it take you to 
because obviously they're just people that you've watched on TV and looked up to, but they're just normal humans in every other way. How long did it take you to be able to, you know, just go up to Kirk Herbstreet and say, you know, hey, well, how's it going? What'd you do this weekend? And kind of get past that shock and awe phase. You know, it took a while. I, I And I still feel a little in awe of all of them. But they are my colleagues now. And, like, Kirk Herbstreet's family sent me a Christmas card. Like, that Like that felt pretty cool. Like, it's it's okay. We're allowed to be we're allowed to be colleagues. And and it, and it took a while for me just because when I first got there, nobody knew who I was and nor should they have. And, and a lot of people still don't know who I am and nor should they. Uh, that's not a big deal to me. But I've been doing it long enough at the same place, working with a lot of the same people and crossing paths with a lot of these folks now. To the point where it's not that big a deal anymore. And it is, I'm in awe of their talent more so than their avatar. You know, like before it was like, oh my God, that's the face of college football, Kirk Herbstreit. Oh my God, that's Brent Musburger. That's the play-by-play voice of my youth. And, you know, I've worked with Brent. I did, you know, I got to do a thing with him after he had actually retired from ESPN last year in Vegas. I uh, He came on our set and I was hosting something for college basketball's tournament and I got to work with him and, and I've done games with Dick Vitale now at this point that uh, Kirk and I have exchanged text messages during games and, and it's not a big deal anymore, but it's a big deal because I just, I have so much respect for all these people that I, I know work a lot and I, I know they work really hard and I just have an appreciation for what they do as professionals. And, and a lot of them, I have a tremendous respect for as people just because they're really good people to be with. Did you run into any resentment from older people who were like, what is this 24-year-old kid doing at ESPN? Why haven't I got my turn? Did you run into any of that from anybody? I don't think so. I mean, if, if anybody felt that way, I never I never felt it, uh, to their credit, if they were upset or or anything like that. I, I'd like to think that I didn't, you know, I, I didn't make anybody feel that way or give anybody any reason to feel that way about me. Um, I, I, maybe, I mean, there might've been, but like I said, I never felt it. I never wanted to, like I said, with even going into spirit Lake was if I felt the same way going into ESPN, I didn't want to overstep my bounds. I didn't want to do something that I wasn't supposed to do. I didn't want to make any assumptions about who I was or who anybody else was. I just wanted to show up and try to do my job as best as I could and work with the people that I was scheduled to work with and assigned to work with. And and try to build rapport with them. And, and I just wanted to put my head down. I was just so thankful for the opportunity because I, I, I get it, man. Like I'm, it's not above me to realize how stupid it is to be at ESPN in a full-time capacity at 24. Like, I know that's a dumb thing and it's, it's probably undeserved in some ways because there are a lot of great announcers out there that should have opportunities that I got. And, one or two things didn't fall their way, and then the rest of the dominoes didn't fall down. And for me, one thing or two things happened, and the right people or the right situation popped up, and all the rest of the dominoes happened to fall in place. I, I like to think that some of my work and, and my work ethic and some, you know, it's based on some level of merit that I've earned some of this. But a lot of this, you don't, you don't have any control of. So I understand that my place was just to show up do the job, get better at it, work with the people that I'm, I'm supposed to work with, try to be their friends and their colleagues and their coworker and just do the games and then leave. Like go to the game, do the game, go home, go to the game, do the game, go to the next game, do that. And then go home. Like that's my job. And that's all I wanted to do. So 
hopefully I didn't ruffle any feathers on the way up. But at this point, I don't think I really make any apologies for anything I've done. I don't think I've upset anybody and I hope I haven't, but I don't think I've done anything. I, I, I'll say this. I don't, I wouldn't have changed anything I've done. I think I've made the right decisions. I think I've treated people well. I hope I have. And you just go from there. You do the job well. You treat the people around you well. You know, it's the old work hard and be nice mantra. And I think I've done those two things, hopefully, the last, you know, seven or eight years. Certainly there's, and I'm, again, a huge fan of your work. I think it's absolutely deserved. But it's um, it's just a weird dynamic the way that you just have to be ready for that opportunity when it comes, and you were. So a, a lot of credit for that. I, I like to think that that's kind of how it, how it worked. Like, I, I'm, you can never... I don't want to put on like this level of fake humility where it's like, oh, well, you know, I haven't done anything to deserve. Like, no, I worked hard to, to be good at this and I worked hard to earn the respect, I hope, of my colleagues and, and the people that I work for. But I'm also it's a balance. I'm also not stupid enough or naive enough or narcissistic enough to think that I got all this on my own. Like it's and, and, and again, I'm not even at a level like uh, that I want to be at. I mean, I still want to keep getting better at this and I want to be great at this and i hope one day i'll be great at this and uh great to the point where i get to do some of the things that our upper tier broadcasters get to do in this business and i, I hope one day i get that chance but you know it's a, it's a balance knowing that you have to put in the work and it's okay to enjoy the fruits of your labor and, and know that you did a good job when you have done a good job but also to realize that there's a lot of people who have a lot of different uh hands in a lot of different avenues of this business and there are a lot of levers that have to be pushed, and there's a lot of dominoes that have to fall into place, and none of that is in your control. All you can control is how hard you work, how much you appreciate the craft, and how you treat the people around you, and I hope I've done those things at a, at a good level. You know, one of the things about your broadcast specifically that I really enjoy is the way that you're able to kind of put your sense of humor and your personality into the broadcast. That's not always an easy thing to do, and looking back at this conversation... You know, it kind of reminds me of the way Ian Eagle is able to do it. Uh, how much of an influence does he have on your ability to do that, or is that just something that comes natural? You know, it's so funny that you say that, Logan, because he's the he's the the mark for that. You know, he's the bar that I think has been set in terms of being not being a a, a stand up comic when you're on the air, but being loose and being having an ability to have fun. Like that's okay. Like I, I looked up to Marv Albert when he was growing up and coming up in the business. And for obvious reasons, Marv was the greatest, you know, basketball announcer probably would ever do this, but Marv always had this way of getting the, the most personality out of his analyst. Cause he was willing to make fun of himself and he was a self-deprecating guy. And he realized at the end of the day, like he was calling tremendously important games. And when the game is important and when the game is big and the moment is big, you have to match that moment. But you're also allowed in the other portions of the game to have fun. And I've always been somebody who was hesitant to inject their personality into it because I didn't know if I had any or if my personality would hit home with anybody. But for me, it's, it's being able to have a rapport with your, with your teammates. And if you have a rapport with your teammates – and you're, you guys are having fun together, I think a lot of the time the audience at home is going to have fun with you. Because if you guys are enjoying it, 
I'm enjoying it on the couch. If I'm watching a game and the announcers are having a good time or they're enjoying the great atmosphere or they're, you know, the game's insane and they're just living it up, uh, whether it's in the professionalism of their calls and, and mastering the big moments or being able to enjoy uh, just the, the, the instance that they're in, whether it's through humor or whether it's through their personality, uh, I realize like it's okay to do that. Marv was great at that. Ian takes after Marv. And Ian definitely had an influence on me to say, you're allowed to let your personality through. But the big thing he told me, especially when I was coming up, don't force it. Like, it's going to come. But get, get to a level where you're comfortable with your call first. And then when you have confidence in your call, you'll have confidence in every other aspect of the broadcast. Whether it's your personality or being able to throw a joke in there or making, making a remark or something like that, or trying to tease your analyst or letting them tease you, all that will come when you have confidence in your call. And, you know, Ian certainly lets his humor through, but it, let's also remember that he's one of the great technical broadcasters that we have in this business. And the guys that are funny on air are typically the ones who are pretty good at their job too, because they're so confident in their call that they feel comfortable doing the other stuff. You know, one of the things you're known for is your versatility and your ability to call Olympic sports. You can call volleyball, softball, all that stuff, and do them all at a very high level. How long does it take you to, for lack of a better word, master a new sport and feel confident uh, in broadcasting something that you're not familiar with? Yeah, and, and, and master is definitely not the right word, but I, I understand that it was the first one that came to mind, but like... It, it's it, it takes a while and you'll never really master any any sport i don't think because you know there's always the possibility of something happening that you've never seen or you didn't expect or maybe it wasn't in the rule book or wasn't studied very closely in the rule book or whatever it may be like it it takes a long time and and we still have you know monthly sometimes bi-weekly uh videos sent to us about the college football rule book and i'm studying the rule book still now and i I spent a lot of time during the summer adjusting things in my in my personal rule book and trying to, you know, like you said, master all these different scenarios. And for, to do it for a lot of different sports, it's not the easiest thing in the world. But I don't think you ever feel truly comfortable, but I think that's part of the fun of it. You know, you study as much as you can and you try to ingrain all of this into your memory as much as you possibly can so that just in case that moment does pop up where that information, that piece of information is relevant, then that's when you, when you bring out the, the support for it. So I, I don't ever want to say I, I truly ever feel comfortable because I think it, it's good to feel uncomfortable because that keeps you on your toes, but I want to feel confident and it takes a while. It takes, you know, it took me a long time feeling confident doing football. I didn't do a whole lot of football before I got hired at ESPN. So I never truly felt confident in it, uh, confident in it until the last maybe three or four years. And, and even then I'm still, trying to build up and, and learn it and, and feel confident in that. Uh, I did a lot more basketball and baseball. I did a lot of softball uh, in, in my freelance work. So I felt more comfortable doing those sports. I played volleyball growing up uh, in, in junior high and high school and a little bit in college. So I felt comfortable calling volleyball. And I called a lot of it while I was a student broadcaster. But uh, I hadn't done a ton of wrestling. I did a little bit of it. I, I was struggling that first year. I did five NCAA wrestling championships. And those first couple of years, I was just trying to get the lay of the land. And then as I got more comfortable in it, I felt more confident in the call. So I don't think you ever truly feel like you master anything. 
I think it's good to feel uncomfortable, but you try to get to those points as soon as you can and as fast as you can. But, you know, it takes reps to get there, too. So uh, I know it's kind of a, a, a roundabout answer, but that's kind of how I feel about it more than any, any, any way else. Okay, let's just follow up on that with, for example, I've had the opportunity to do this once where I broadcast one hockey game and I've never been around hockey. It's not a big thing in Nebraska where I grew up and sure. I knew almost nothing about it. And I know where I started when I had to do that to start finding information and and figuring out how to do a broadcast without having any knowledge of the sport. What is your starting point when you're doing wrestling or something else that you're just completely unfamiliar with? I think watching watching tape was the big thing for me first. Uh, just watching, uh, going on YouTube and watching like Big Ten Network broadcasts or, or old NCAA championships and just trying to figure out what the analysts were talking about. What did they think were, was important? I think that's a great baseline to any good broadcast is what does the analyst think is important that that night that game that series uh that event and then you kind of build your preparation out there so i always wanted to listen to the analysts on those broadcasts and say all right well he's talking about a hold or he's talking about uh you know a you know a shot or he's talking about this position or he's talking about the timing or the scoring in this scenario so just trying to start from there I think was a great way to do it. And then obviously you pay attention to what the play-by-play guys are doing to support that. Uh, you go through the rule book. I mean, top to bottom, I try to go through the rule book. I watched a ton of like instructional videos, just trying to learn as much as I could. And then, oh, by the way, you have to learn about the current personnel and the current coaches and the current wrestlers and the current players. So for me, that was, uh, and, and the, you know, who are the big players in this play of, and, and in this cast that you have to learn? And that was important. Uh, to me, to, to be a, uh, ingrained in that process that first year. And it, and it still didn't come to fruition in a way that I was happy. I still didn't think I did a very good job. Um, but as the years went on, that's, you know, you build off of that information. Everything you do in broadcasting, I feel like is cumulative. The more you do it, the you know, by theory and principle, the better you should be at it. And the more you study it, the more it should be ingrained in your head. So uh, just being diligent about that stuff was, was probably the most important thing. And, and that continues to be the case today. I know the very first thing I did was I went to the library and I checked out hockey for dummies. Hey, that, that's a great starting point, right? Like it just gives you a sense and, and some of it might be remedial and some of it might sound like it's, it, it's, it's too basic, but remember the base, you start with the basics and you build off there. It's all, I, I totally understand that process and it's all cumulative. So I've always found it interesting. You're very good friends with Joe Davis and you both got, very good jobs at a very early age and were friends coming up through the process. How has that relationship helped you to advance and, and push each other? Oh my gosh. Seriously, Logan, it's one of the great joys in my life is seeing Joe succeed the way he has. And I'll include, by the way, uh, Wayne Randazzo in that mix as well. Uh, Wayne is, is as tremendous and as talented as a, of a young broadcaster as we have in this country. And the three of us kind of, I, th I think it helped tremendously, actually. And uh, no, Joe and I knew each other first. Uh, we knew each other when I was in Gary and he, or uh, yeah, when I was in Gary and he was in Schaumburg, uh, we were doing uh, the Northern League uh, for a summer together. He was obviously working for a different team, but we hit it off right away. And, you know, I remember going up to him at, you know, eating a meal one day and I said, you know, hey, do you, you, you mind if we chat? And he was, he and I were just talking and 
he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to be on network TV one day. And he said, oh, me too. And for whatever reason, like we just clicked in that moment and we became buddies. And then we started listening to each other's tapes. And I just remember thinking, God, I am not as good as Joe is. And I think Joe would tell you, man, I'm not as good. I don't sound as good as Adam does. And it's, it was a, it was, it was a realization for both of us that we needed to keep pushing ourselves. And because we had each other in our lives and we were so diligent about sending each other tapes and things like that, uh, I think that, that really pushed the, pushed our, you know, we pushed ourselves and we pushed each other and, you know, oddly enough, Joe, uh, got me my first TV job. Uh, Joe was doing the Illinois high school volleyball championships for, you know, like local TV. And we were, they were doing four classes and Joe said, Hey, I need an analyst for two. And then I'll be your, uh, I'll be the analyst for the other two. And you can do the play-by-play. And I'm like, absolutely. And that's how we first started like working together. We did the Illinois high school volleyball championships together in 2009. And we thought it was such a big deal. And we were making, uh, you know, we, we, we shared a hotel room together and we were just talking about how are we going to do this? How are we going to talk about this? And we were trying to be so perfect about it. And it was just funny to have somebody as nerdy about this basically as I was. Uh, and then Joe went off and got a job in double A with the Montgomery biscuits. And in that league, in the Southern league, he met Wayne who was working for the mobile Bay bears. Uh, Wayne is from St. Charles, Illinois, which is not too far from where I'm from in Addison. So we became friends through Joe and all three of us recognized in each other what we saw in ourselves. And that was, we really cared about the craft. We really wanted to do big things in this business. We, we had high goals for ourselves. We set very, you know, uh, lofty goals for ourselves. And we knew that if we had each other in our lives, I think we would all push each other in a positive direction. And here we are, you know, less than 10 years later and Joe's working for Fox and, you know, he replaced Vin Scully and was doing the MLB playoffs and does, you know, just did the big 12 title game. And here's Wayne who works in the number one market in the country for one of the great franchises in major league baseball in the New York Mets and does big 10 network and ESPN and, and is as versatile as they come doing NFL on the radio and, and doing college basketball. And here I am doing what I'm doing at ESPN. And it's, I we're like, we would have been friends anyway, I think just because we have very similar personalities, but one of the great, great, great joys in my life is to see them succeed as much as they have and to be as close to them as friends as I I've been lucky enough to be and to see them grow personally. You know, Wayne's got a kid and Wayne's married now. Joe's got a kid. Joe's married now. I was in both their weddings. Like whenever I get married, they're going to be in my wedding. Like they're, they're my closest, you know, some of my closest friends on this planet. And just to see them succeed as much as they have is uh, gives me almost almost as much satisfaction as being able to do what I what I get to do. Tell us something about the campus in Bristol at ESPN. Tell us something. Lift the curtain of something uh, the way things are inside that building. Just tell us something that we wouldn't know that we'd be surprised mm. about. It's not, it's definitely not as glamorous as people might make it out to be. Uh, it's a lot of grinding. It's a lot of grunt work and it's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people that work their butts off. And, and by the way, this isn't just at ESPN. I know this is at a lot of places, but I've, I've seen it firsthand at ESPN. It's just so many people who work so hard to try to put out a good product. And listen, I read the stories and I hear things too. I know about layoffs and I know about the budgets and I know about money getting cut and we see it, uh, you know, it affects us on the remote side of things as well. I'm not stupid. I'm not naive and I don't close my eyes or stick my head in the sand, but at its essence, 
ESPN is just a bunch of people who really like sports who are trying to put together as good of a product as they possibly can. And when I see that, that makes me feel pretty cool, like to be a part of that. And I'd like to think I would feel that way if I worked somewhere else too. But I respect what the what, what the folks out there do to make this happen. And I I hope that people realize that it's not that easy to just have the game on when you flip on your TV at eight o'clock Eastern time and the game's just there. There's hundreds, if not thousands of people that have put in a lot of hours to make that happen and to see how hard they work and to appreciate what they do and to understand that they're as big of the, as big a part of the experience as you might be to a fan because the fan sees you on air. So they kind of assume that you're the head of this whole thing. Uh, that's not really the case. And uh, as much as I can shed a light on the people that do that stuff behind the scenes, uh, the better I think we all are for it to appreciate what they really, the, the, the blood and sweat and tears that they put into putting out as good of a product as they can. I guess I was thinking more along the lines with that question is, is the food good? Is the uh, the facilities? Uh, I, I was not going as deep as that. No, 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 no. You know what? And, and I'll tell you this, man. If any of you ever get a chance to take a tour or like go see the digital center or just kind of walk around the place, it is really freaking cool. Like uh, I was blown away. I'd never been on set really before until August. I was doing the fantasy football marathon. And I never even walked into the digital center really to to use it or to work on one of the sets. And I was on the one of the NFL sets, and it's basically one huge NFL set that they have with a bunch of different stations. It, it was mind blowing, like the the lights that are there and the setup. And and by the way, the cafeteria is actually pretty darn good. Like the food there is legit. Uh, I don't think people would realize that. I think they see kind of you know, they can maybe Connecticut and Bristol, and they're you know I'm not saying it's it's the hoppinest town in in America, but uh, but, but admittedly, it's not like there's not a ton to do by any means. And it's, you know, it's cold in the wintertime and it's kind of gray sometimes when you go over there and you walk in and the digital center's bumping and the food's really good. And you walk in and you see Herm Edwards, although not anymore because he's taking over at Arizona State. But, you know, Adam Schefter is just hanging around campus and you bump into him and say, hey, what's up, Adam? Good to see you. Or, you know, like, like Jalen Rose is just hanging out on campus and just like little stuff like that kind of makes you just laugh and it gives you a double take. And I mean, it's, it's still, it's still like just about any other workplace, except in this workplace, you just happen to see what these people do on TV. Like it's, it's, it, it definitely is uh, a kind of mind bending experience actually being on campus there. I know your job is to do the play by play aspects, but what would you give to be part of a, this is sports center commercial. Oh man. Uh, yeah, I, I would, uh, I'd give up, I'd give up, uh, maybe a week's salary to, to be, to be out of this is sports. I think that'd be pretty cool. Not admittedly, like that'd be really fun. Uh, I don't think anybody would really care if I were in one, but I think it'd be pretty fun either way. What if the price was one kidney? No, I don't think I'd go that far. I don't need that. I don't, <laughs> I, I, I need the kidney just to process all the terrible food I probably eat. So I think it's more important for me to have that rather than be in the business sports center commercial. You know, if you follow, if you follow Adam on social media, you'll find, as he mentioned, that he's a little bit of a fast food aficionado. I guess what is your favorite spot to get fast food in the country? 
Oh man. I mean, I like to think I'm more than just a fast food aficionado, but uh, no, we'll start there. Fast food aficionado. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. All right. Uh, I, I guess this is technically fast food because there's a drive-through, right? Like, I think that's a, a decent prerequisite. If it's a, if it's a, sure. a drive-through, then then it's technically a fast food. And for me, I and I get that people out west that think it's overrated, or or people in Texas don't like it at all because they've got Whataburger. But for me, I love In-N-Out Burger. I'm sorry, I just really, really love In-N-Out Burger. Uh, and I love Shake Shack. Like those are the two like fast food joints. Although I don't know if Shake Shack really has a, a drive through. So I'll stick with In-N-Out. Uh, I love the double, double, uh, double, double animal style. I like to get, uh, the fries animal style as well. Just like I'm in heaven. If you get me a, a double, double, I'm just uh, like, I'm the happiest guy on the planet. Like I just really love it. So anytime I go to Utah, Arizona, California, they do have them in Texas. Uh, anytime I get to go to those states, like I'm automatically making a trip to In-N-Out Burger. Being able to travel as much as you do, what's a city that surprises you as far as the level of food and culture and just fun place to be? Uh, to, I'll give you a couple places, and we happen to go to them uh, this year. El Paso, Texas, and Boise, Idaho. And I don't think people would realize how many incredible restaurants are on Boise. Uh, Jason Benetti, who uh, works at ESPN as a play-by-play guy, is also the voice of the White Sox. Awesome announcer, really great guy. Uh, And he was in Boise, I want to say, last season. And and it might have been earlier this year, too. But he ended up going to this place called Fork in downtown Boise. And he's like, you have to go here. You Get the short rib. Get the cake. you'll, You'll love it. So I was like, hey, let's go here. We were there last week for the Mountain West Championship game. And I was like, I told my crew, we got to go to this place. Amazing. And it was one of the best meals I've had all season. And uh, when we were in Boise earlier in, in the season, uh, I took everybody to a place called Barbacoa, which I had discovered last year. Uh, they make this flat iron steak or this uh, this filet on a hot rock that's like 600 degrees and they light it on fire and it's amazing. And then something that we really like to do on our Friday night package this year was, uh, as our producer Kim Belton would say, give people a sense of place. So yeah, food is uh, definitely a big part of that, but we also like to talk about the culture and the history. So when we went to Boise, I dove into the story of Boise, Idaho, and you learned that it was a French fur trapper that was escorting American soldiers through the Oregon territory and saw the tree-lined valley in Boise and said, le bois, le bois, and that means the wood. And that's how this territory got its name Boise. B-O-I-S is bois, and it turned into Boise. And Abraham Lincoln was the president when the Act of Idaho was signed. And we talked about that on the air. And I just had so much fun talking about the history. Same thing in El Paso, Texas. Amazing Mexican food, amazing tacos, amazing breakfast food. And then there's also this rich history about bandits that had gone through El Paso, Texas on their travels towards you know the West Coast and things like that. And just these little uh, moments that we can take a respite from just the football and give people an idea of where we are. I always just... I really enjoyed that about our package this year. So uh, these are really underrated cities that I don't think a lot of people would think about going to, but maybe because we talked about the food and we, we kind of hype up these places because there are some great places to go uh, to eat or to dive into the culture. Uh, maybe somebody will think about going to these places one day because we did something on a broadcast. So to me, that's a really, really underrated and significantly fun portion of this job. Who would have thought that they could listen to this and learn about Boise and El Paso? <laughs> How do you make your decisions on where to go on the road? Do you just Google search 
the best places? Do you find people with recommendations? What's your go-to to find uh, the the hidden gems? Combination of all those things. Google searching, asking people, uh, asking your fellow uh, broadcasters. Like I had the best breakfast tacos of my entire life in El Paso, Texas at a place called H&H Car Wash. And it's literally what you think it is. It's a car wash with a diner attached to it. Maynard, this a uh, curmudgeon man is the proprietor of the place and he's hilarious and he's just uh, uh this you know sweet old man behind this tough exterior and the place has the best breakfast tacos I've ever had in my entire life and it was because Carter Blackburn of CBS and Wes Durham of the Atlanta Falcons who also does college football uh for Fox he uh, both of them actually recommended hey you got to go to H&H you got to go to this place you'll love it order the breakfast tacos go talk to Maynard and that was how I discovered this place. And if I ever go back to El Paso, I'm going straight back there. Uh, it's the same thing in places like Albuquerque. Oh, you got to go to this place. You got to go to that place for Mexican food. Uh, when I go to Fort Worth, Texas, my uh, one of my radio sideline reporters, Ian Fitzsimmons, says, go to Lonesome Dove. So we're going back to Fort Worth for a bowl game. I'm taking my crew to Lonesome Dove. We have to go there. Um, and it's, it's through word of mouth. It's through recommendations. It's through Google searching. But the, at the end of the day for me, and I've said this before to friends of mine, uh, that have asked about food because I, I feel like it's cool that we've kind of garnered this reputation as, as, uh, some, some food aficionados. Like you said, I like being able to just explore and I've always recommended that definitely go ask people and Google search and find these places, but go exploring and find the hole in the wall Mexican joint that you like, or find the under the radar chicken joint that nobody's really talking about. Um, you know, I know everybody loves Hattie B's in Nashville. I go to Bolton's instead because that was somewhere where my friend Trav Haney took me. And, you know, there's, there's bars on the windows and it's, it's old school down home, Southern chicken cooking. And that's where I go to now. So, uh, exploring, asking, searching all these things at the end of the day, it's all about just having a good meal and whatever route you have to take to get there. Uh, I support it a hundred percent. What is your least favorite airport? Columbia, Missouri. I, love, I enjoy Columbia, and by the way, one of the greatest burgers you'll ever have is at Booch's Pool Hall in Columbia, Missouri. Highly recommend it, cash only. Just get, It's the most basic, simple, delicious cheeseburger ever, but their airport is garbage. And I'm sorry, I love you, Columbia, Missouri, but I hate your airport. It's one gate. It's like just very awkward in there. Uh, and, I, and also, I'm not a fan of Kansas City's airport either because like, they, they don't have anything once you get past security. So maybe it's just the state of Missouri. Missouri is not a good airport state, man. Although St. Louis is fine. So I don't know what. Catch up to St. Louis, Columbia, and Kansas City. That's what I say. One more food question, and then we'll get back to broadcasting, I promise. But being <laughs> from the Chicago area, you got to pick your best Chicago-style pizza. For me, I, uh, I'm a Lou Malnati's guy, personally. Um, now, I'll say this. That, that's deep dish. So that's Chicago deep dish, which is its own thing. True Chicago style pizza is square cut. It's called tavern style pizza where, you know, you have the little corn. It's a circle. It's cut in little squares. Then you have the little triangle corners. Uh, that's real Chicago style pizza. So if anybody wants to go to a great joint, Art of Pizza is my favorite spot in Chicago for that type of pizza. And if you're looking for the true deep dish pizza, my favorite of the three big chains, or not even chains, but the three big boys, Giordano's, Lou Malnati's, Gino's East. I'm a Lou Malnati's guy. I think Giordano's has the best crust, or uh, best sauce. Gino's East has the best crust, and I think Malnati's has the best overall product. We, I actually just was broadcasting a game at uh, St. Francis University in 
Fort Wayne. And on the way back, we stopped at like the satellite Lou Malnati's in Joliet. So I, I can agree 100%. We actually drove right by Valparaiso for what it's worth. But uh, um, I wanted to start a new thing because I, I wrote a blog post on this and I thought it could be a fun thing to start asking. The, the thing was broadcast confessions, things that you should have done or should know as a broadcaster that you didn't. And the example I'm going to use is I never once listened to one inning of Vin Scully calling baseball, which kind of makes me sad in hindsight. But what is your broadcast confession, the thing that you've wanted to do but just never have? Hmm, That's a great question. Man, I think I would have liked to... Man, I, I feel bad. I don't know. I don't know. And I and my apologies if I don't answer this question correctly, Logan. It's a great. That's a great question. I I think I would have liked to listen to Jack Buck call a Monday Night Football game, and I never really appreciated Jack Buck as a radio announcer uh, for football the way I did it on baseball because I, you know, growing up, you you know, I, watching the nineteen ninety one and ninety World Series. You know, he's the announcer for those games uh, on CBS. So kind of as a young sports fan, I remember Jack Buck being on TV and I just kind of assumed he was a TV guy. I didn't know he was the Cardinals announcer until much later. Obviously, I dove into the history of that, but I didn't realize he was like a, a big time Monday Night Football announcer. And I really I never got a chance to listen to Jack Buck do Monday Night Football. And I think that would have been a good experience to actually get a chance to do that. And I I kind of regret not ever hearing one of those live. One of the other questions that I ask everybody is, what are some of your, I like to call them broadcasting horror stories, where something goes horribly <laughs> wrong, the equipment doesn't work, your broadcast location is awful, it could be anything, but something that just mortifies you at the time that you can look back on and laugh now? Man, I mean, there's plenty of them working in the minor leagues, uh, being on the roof of uh, a snowy, you know, on top of a press box and snowy, Council Bluffs, Iowa, for uh, the first game I ever did for the radio station at KUOO, uh, doing a uh, you know an October playoff football game on a snowy roof on my first game. Uh, I would say having the mixer go out on me and having to call the game from my cell phone. I've had to do that before. I'm trying to think of ESPN too. Oh yeah, we had a we had a a super regional game. Uh, during the baseball tournament, I think it was TCU and Pepperdine, if I'm not mistaken. And the switcher, which is uh, what the technical director uses to switch all the cameras uh, that the director wants to see on air, uh, that went out at one point. And we were limited to one camera, and then that camera went out. And we had to call the final two outs radio style, which, again, I was happy to do, but just kind of dealing with a moment like that, you know, even on ESPN, it happens once in a while where you have a have an equipment malfunction. Uh, those definitely stick out. I'll give you one one really good one. Uh, I was doing a high school football game, and this made deadspin. So not certainly not my proudest moment. But Tom Luganville and I were doing a high school football game in 2012. Derek Henry uh, was going up against uh, Kelvin Taylor, two guys that eventually went to the SEC, and. I remember uh, Fred Taylor is the son, of, is the father of Kelvin Taylor. Fred was an outstanding running back for the Jacksonville Jaguars and a very good one at Florida. And our crew did this amazing job of putting together side by side video of Kelvin and Fred 
kind of doing the same motions on the field. And, and it was a really great job. And in the second quarter, one of our cameramen, it was a local cameraman in, in the Jacksonville area, said, hey, I found Fred Taylor. Uh, here he is. I, I didn't get a chance to meet Fred before the game, which I would have loved to do and talk to him. But I didn't know what he looked like. I didn't I didn't know who he was or I knew who he was, but I didn't know where, what he looked like or where he was. And our camera guy said, hey, he's here. I've got him. You, can, you guys can talk about him. And our producer was like, all right. Hey, Fred, that's Fred Taylor. So we start talking about Fred Taylor and we're showing his son and doing all this great video stuff. And then like middle of the third quarter, we're still talking about him and showing him. My phone starts to blow up and we're saying, you idiots, that's not Fred Taylor. That's somebody else. Like, you guys are morons. Like, I can't believe you're doing this. I mean, we were accused of being racist at the time, which really is hurtful. And I was like, oh, my God, I, I hope I didn't offend or upset anybody. And, you know, we just, we were just going by the recommendation of one of the camera people. And sure enough, when we found the actual Fred Taylor who was at the game, uh, I just remember going, uh, there's Fred Taylor. We were misidentifying him earlier. Uh, second down and eight. And, and just completely blowing past it because that's all we could do uh, because we were so mortified and we felt like idiots. And now, you know, years later, we can look back on that moment and say, wow, that was really funny. Uh, I can't believe we misidentified somebody's dad for two quarters and really wrote it. I mean, we were showing him a lot and uh, we can laugh about it now. But at the time, I just remember feeling like such an idiot and just being mortified. And again, technically, is it our fault? I mean, I mean like, yeah, no. You know, the camera guy told us that, that was him. So we got to trust our crew. He happened to be wrong that particular night. And hey, if I if Fred had gotten there or if I'd seeked him out or maybe if I had prepared better or whatever, maybe we wouldn't have had that problem. But I didn't. And I was terrified at the moment. And I can laugh about it now. Did you ever talk to Fred Taylor after that moment to find out what he thought? I still have never got a chance to talk to Fred Taylor. I've talked to Kelvin, but I still have yet to talk to Fred Taylor. I did not tell Kelvin that story because I just felt like such a jerk about it. Because uh, it wasn't too long afterwards. I think it was uh, maybe a couple months at the Under Armour game later where I got a chance to talk to him about it. But uh, I never brought that up with Kelvin. But hopefully one day I'll get to meet Fred Taylor and tell him I think he's a great running back and maybe tell him that story and hope that he doesn't hate me for it. That's fantastic. Walk us through, since it's basketball season, I actually have my first basketball game of the season tomorrow from when we're recording this. Walk us through your preparation process for a basketball game. Yeah, it's just you, you start with the who's important, who's not. You know, you go through the rosters, you go, you know, I have a template on open office and I do, you know, numbers and names and height and weight and vitals and hometowns. And then you do the stats Who's your leading scorer? Who's your leading rebounder? Who makes an impact in the game? Uh, and then I start reading some previews. Uh, the Blue Ribbon book is obviously one of our uh, our Bibles when it comes to college hoops because there's so much turnover in college basketball. You know, with the one and dones, a lot of turnover, especially for the big name programs. So you got to know who left, who's gone, and now who's coming in, and uh, and how are they going to make an, how are they going to make an impact going forward in the season? I'll watch some games, some uh, you know, some uh, some broadcasts of the last couple of games that teams have played. And just to get a sense of them. And at the end of it all, when we go out and do the game, you have the main storylines and you got a couple of nuggets and anecdotes on, on a lot of the players and, and you just kind of let them work. You know, something I've, I've really taken to heart the last couple of years is to continue to prepare as hard as I've always prepared, but really learning how to scale back and using that preparation because 
you know, you're still only doing one game in a series of 35 for that team during the season. You're still only, only doing one college football game in a series of 12 to 15 that they may play that year. So, you know, you let the avenues open up to where you can use your preparation. You don't try to force them. Uh, so that's kind of how we approach basketball. It's a little different in the NBA, obviously, with uh, some of the other things you need to know. It's a longer season, more information, more stories on guys. Um, and that's, you know, generally the case with pro sports in, in baseball and football and basketball anyways. But, you know, you, you, you try to streamline it as much as you can, but you want to have as good of an idea of the scope of not only the team, but each individual uh, as they contribute to that team over the course of a season. So it starts with the basics like it usually does, you know, height, weight, name, number. And uh, you go to the numbers from there just to get context about what these guys can do. And, and then you go, you go and call the game. Um, uh, I, I think basketball is probably the easiest because it's a smaller roster and obviously um, and, and a small, a shorter season uh, relative to, you know, like a baseball team or obviously pro basketball, but you know, you just kind of start, start from the basics and work your way up. Let's take you back to your KUOO days or shortly after when uh, Information is a little bit more scarce than it is when you're covering uh, a D1 college or an NBA team. What did you do to find some of that key information? I know in Iowa they had quick stats. You didn't necessarily have some of the difficulties that others do, but what what did you do to find that stuff when it wasn't available? God, how great was quick stats? I mean, that is awesome. (laughs) It was so great. I was I was blown away when I first discovered it. But uh, yeah, it's a lot of just talking to coaches. And trying to talk to the players themselves. And, and at, here's the thing. These are kids, and they're excited to talk about what they're passionate about. And the same way I'm, you know, I feel like a kid when it comes to this stuff, talking to you. Like, I love talking about this. It's, it's something I'm, I'm passionate about. I care about it. And there's a reason you're doing a podcast about it, because you care. And that's how most people are when they're doing something that they enjoy. And when you talk to kids about the sport that they get to play and that they get to be featured on or, Hey, I'm going to talk about you. Do you have anything interesting? A lot of these kids are willing to talk. They, they don't always do. And that's okay too. They don't want to, or they're not, they don't really feel like what they have to say is interesting, but a lot of the time it is. And just being able to go out and, and talk to people, you'll, it's always great when you get to glean a nugget from a conversation you had. And I, I take that to heart today, talking with players. And I was very shy when I first started doing games at ESPN, I didn't know how to talk to athletes. I didn't, understand uh the process of that I, I was i was hesitant to talk to coaches unless it was set up by espn or if it was in a meeting but i've taken it to heart i'm allowed to go out there and and you know chat with a kid while he's taking some jump shots or or when he's stretching like hey man how are you feeling tonight uh, i'm calling the game uh, you know how was practice this week and even you know you may not get anything from it but you develop a relationship with the guy or, or the or the athlete or the coach or whatever and you, and you go from there and, and anytime you can glean an information, a nugget of information and be able to use that in a good spot, that, that always feels satisfying. And it makes you realize, Hey, like these guys have a lot of interesting stuff to say, uh, regardless of sports, softball, women's basketball, NFL, NBA, like everybody's got something interesting to say. And sometimes it really works out where you get to use it in just the right spot. So what do you do to this day to get better? You mentioned that you still have higher aspirations than where you're at right now, even, and that you're working to get better. What do you do to improve? 
Well, Joe and Wayne are still two of the most important people in my life because they listen and they watch and I watch their games and we critique each other and we say, hey, you can do this better. You can do that better. Hey, I really like that you do this. Great call on that. Hey, what did you do here? And being able to bounce those things off of my friends, the people I trust the most, being able to talk to my producers about that and being able to talk to other play-by-play guys at ESPN. Like I, I never would have thought that I could call Joe Tessitore or Sean McDonough or Mike Tirico uh, on like a random Wednesday and have them pick up the phone and say, Hey pal, what's up? And be able to ask them questions. And the fact that they're willing to do that is just so cool to me. And I, I, I want to learn from them. And I remember having a transformation in terms of how I called college football a couple of years ago because of conversations that Joe and Sean had, uh, Tessator and McDonough, they, they gave me some advice that I still take to heart to this day. And it still was applicable to me. And two years later, when I watch tape now and watch tape from a game I did in November of 2015, I see a difference and I hear a difference. And I realize that while it may not seem like it in the moment, in the micro of the moment, in the macro, if you're aware of the issues that you have, if you're aware of the things that you want to improve on, if you watch your tapes back and say, man, I didn't do that well enough, or I could be better here. I didn't have to talk here. Uh, I didn't use this nugget in the right spot. There's no reason to use that. It was superfluous. If you know what the issues are, that's the first step towards getting better at them and to not, maybe not solving them, but to get it, to get better at them in game. And, you know, the more you're aware of those things, the better you are at applying them to the actual broadcast. So that was really important to me is just constantly watching and then getting feedback from the people that you trust the most and listening critically. I still listen critically to radio broadcasts of other announcers because I want to know, listen, this guy's been doing it for 30 years. This person's been doing it for 50 years in this job. Why? Uh, what makes them great? And, you know, always being able to, t- to sample a little bit from other broadcasters or to glean something that you can apply in your own personality and your own voice and in your own call. I've always thought that that was a great way to try to get better at this. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to on a night off, both on a on a national level and maybe some under the radar people that we may not know their names? Absolutely. Um, well, I'm a big. Uh, obviously, I became a New York Mets fan. You know, on the in the periphery uh, when Wayne got the Mets job, so I watch a lot of Mets TV, and I love Gary Cohen. And the chemistry he has with Ron Darling and Keith Hernandez, I'm blown away by just how good that booth is uh, during a long baseball season, especially if the team's not very good. Those guys are so good at what they do. Uh, I grew up listening to Wayne Larravee, uh, who was the voice of the Bears and then eventually a longtime voice of the, of the Green Bay Packers on radio. Uh, he is as good of a football radio play-by-play guy as there ever has been in the history of the medium. He's so sharp. He's so detailed. He's so good, but he's so well-paced. He doesn't overload you. Uh, so I still listen to, to him a lot. Um, I, I look up to Sean McDonough a lot. He might be the most mechanically and technically sound television play-by-play announcer we've had uh, in the last 20 years. Uh, to understand how to really call the big moment, Joe Buck, uh, and I know he's a, he can be a polarizing figure, although I'll never understand why, uh, he is as good of a baseball national baseball and he's the he's the best national baseball announcer we've had since Vince Scully. And in the last 20 years, there's been no better national baseball announcer. He granted he's been in the position to do it because he's had all the big games, especially as, as a sports fan the last 20 years. He's called every World Series. So 
or just about every World Series. So, you know, he's been the voice of my youth as a baseball fan, and he's nailed all those big moments. And he does it as well as anybody, and he's as good at letting the crowd and the pictures tell a story as any announcer. Dan Schulman is so intelligent and such an in-control, authoritative voice, but he's the best point guard. He's always willing to let his analysts be the star. And that's such a great lesson that all of us can learn. Um, Joe Tessitore is so sparse sometimes in his commentary. And that's a lesson that we can all learn. We can always, no one, no fan has ever sat on their couch going, man, I wish this announcer would talk more. A lot of the times it's, (laughs) man, I wish they would talk less. And Joe's so good about that. Um, Mike Tirico might be the greatest, most versatile announcer we've ever seen in the history of broadcasting. Uh, to go from play-by-play of tennis to the NBA, to college hoops, to the NFL, to golf, to do it as well as he does, and then jump on the NBA finals on radio and the national championship game for college football and to do what he did at ESPN and to keep doing what he's doing at such a high level as a host or as a as an announcer, uh, it's just amazing to watch. And 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 I've already talked about the influence Ian has had on me. Uh, the, so smooth and so natural with the way he injects humor and with how technically sound he is. I mean, there's a million amazing announcers. Kevin Harlan has been such a great influence on me on the radio for football. Uh, Jim Durham, the voice of the Bulls when I was growing up and eventually ESPN radio. Uh, John Miller, John Shambi on baseball. I, I, I mean, I could go on and on. I, I honestly could. But I think all of us appreciate this as a craft. And I think that's what binds us and it's what connects us. Uh, the reason these guys do this job at such a high level uh, is because of that love and that passion. I've talked to Beth Moens about this, and Beth is one of my great friends in this business, and she is somebody to respect and look up to. And we've talked about how nerdy we are about it. And I think that's what really connects all of us as announcers uh, to try to master each big moment uh, to the best of our abilities. It's because we treat it like a craft and we treat it like it is and in some ways an art form. And I think the, those of us who geek out about it really appreciate it and each other. All right. We're going to just one or two more questions. You've already been here an hour and 15 minutes and I feel like I should let you uh, go live your life a little bit on one of your <laughs> rare nights off. But It's um, all good, man. Like I, in all honesty, it's, it's great to talk to you about this stuff. A fellow nerd about this is, uh, is somebody I connect with right away. So it's all good. So you've been able to cover a lot of big moments yourself. I believe you were doing the kick six from Auburn. You covered Isaiah Thomas's 50-plus point outburst in the playoffs. What has been your favorite moment to cover? Uh, I think the it's, it's hard to top the Iron Bowl uh, just because of how big that game was, what it meant, uh, the amazing plays in that game that led to the kick six uh, from Chris Davis. It's hard to top that moment. And that may be the greatest college football game played in the last 30 years. And and I was one of four guys on the call for it. And it's hard to, it's hard to let that go. But I remember just my first MLB game and my first NBA game and uh, my first playoff game uh, in the NBA and, and going to do the national league wildcard game this past year. Uh, for the first time, I never, I'd always wanted to be an MLB broadcaster. And, and when I got to call the playoffs for the first time, it, like, uh, it was incredible. We had a great game. Um, my first network television broadcast on ABC a couple of years ago, uh, we did it. We just a couple of weeks ago, we did South Florida UCF, 
which had an incredible finish with three touchdowns in a 53-second span, and it was on Black Friday on ABC. And, you know what the best part and, of that about that game was? What's that? That their coach is going back to Nebraska. And, and, and exactly, <laughs> yeah. And, and that's that was one of the storylines with Scott Frost. Is he going to stay? Is he going to go? And and there was a division championship on the line that game. And uh, Ezekiel Elliott against the, the Steelers last year. And I remember calling my first NFL game. It was Peyton Manning. Uh, playing against the Cincinnati Bengals and beating them on the road. And, and I called Peyton Manning's 51st touchdown pass. Uh, I want to say it was 2012 or 2013. I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, I called that game. And actually, so did Ian. Ironically enough, we were both on the call for Peyton Manning's 51st touchdown. It was against the Texans. And he broke Tom Brady's record. And just to be a part of some of these moments, and, and even being, uh, while it wasn't the main broadcast, to be on the national championship game last year uh, on the homers broadcast with, with, with Joe, with, with Tess, well, you know, one of my mentors in this business and to be on the call on the field ad. And I mean, there's so many cool things. This is such a, this can be a really great pinch yourself business where, you know, just to take a step back and realize, Holy crap, do I get to really do this? Like, is this, this is the gig. Like they pay you to do this and, and, they let you travel and they let you talk to coaches and they let you call these games and you get to dress up and play pretend and, and wear a fancy suit on air and, and, you know, like just talk about a sport that people seem to care about. And like, that's, that's just cool. I, I, there's, there's so many pinch yourself moments and I'm, I've been so lucky to be a part of them where, whether it's a, a regional in NCAA softball or whether it's the Eastern Conference finals, like either way, I'm happy. Uh, you know, it's somebody's somebody out there cares about that event. And if they're good enough to invest their time and energy into the game that you're calling, you you have the responsibility to try to master that and, and to try to deliver as good of a broadcast as you can. And that's a pretty cool responsibility. And at the end of the day, when you get a moment like kick six or like Isaiah going off in game two last year or or, uh, you know, Avery, uh, John Wall hitting a shot with three seconds to go in game six against the Celtics. Like when you when you get those chances to to call those games like you want to do as good of a job as you can. But when you take a step back, you realize, man, this is pretty damn cool. So just let's uh, focus just on the kick six here, because I know I've heard Rod Bramblett's call. Uh, over and over again that's the one that they play back on the highlights do you feel like you yep. nailed that call what what did no. you how was yours <laughs> I, I I think I nailed it verbally like with with how I described it I remember saying uh Chris Davis has it behind the e of the tiger type you know in the end zone and I, and I remember thinking all right, all right that's a good start and, and I said it runs it out to the tent to the near side 20 to the sideline 30 and as the alleys started opening up a little bit my partner was Gary Barnett, the former Northwestern and Colorado coach. And he just starts punching me in the shoulder and goes, oh, my God, oh, my God. And you can tell that he sees it opening up. And I start to elevate my voice and my call. And as he gets to, like, the 40, I'm running out. I'm already running out. And as I'm marking down the numbers, 30, 20, 10, my vo I'm, I'm basically yelling. And my voice is cracking so badly. And I just remember thinking, why is this going to be the call and I was just so disappointed in myself. I thought, oh, I just I didn't do it justice. Like the words were fine, but the call didn't last, and you know, with the cracking and everything. And then I got a bunch of text messages from like friends and colleagues who happened to be listening, and they were just like, I love, oh my god, your call was great, and it was awesome, and and it, 
you were so emotional about it. You could tell it was a big moment. And I ended up talking to Todd Eichow, one of my mentors, who is the play-by-play guy at Valpo. I was a student broadcaster under him. And uh, I was when I went back to Valpo, I worked underneath him. He's still the play-by-play guy there. And he's one of my closest friends. And, he, and I, I just told him, I said, Todd, I screwed up this call. And I'm so disappointed in myself. It's such a big moment, and I screwed it up. And he said, how did you screw it up? You... You you basically expressed the emotion that anybody else watching that game would have felt. And you delivered that. Your words were great. And I know you're upset about your voice, but your emotion made that call that much more impactful. And while, yes, to this day, I still wish I would have called it a little bit differently in terms of where my voice was, I wouldn't change the words I used. And it made an impact on me when Todd said, no, the emotion is what made that call. And I, that made me feel a lot better about it. So I don't think I nailed the call and I still probably would like to change it if I could, but it was still, I felt a lot better about it after talking to Todd. And I, I appreciated that. Yeah. At the very least, it was one of those pinch yourself moments. And I think the call in some ways does express that. All right. If anybody wanted to reach out to you, what would the best way to do that be? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm always available on Twitter at Adam Amin. I, I mean, I, I I try to communicate with everybody I can, and uh, I try to you know if somebody sends a message, I try to you know answer it as as quickly as I can, and you know it, it's the easiest way to get a hold of me in all honesty. So it's a fun way to interact, and it's uh, it's a easy way to do it. All right, once again, we're chatting with Adam Amin, play-by-play broadcaster at ESPN, and Adam, I sure appreciate you taking the time to do this. Hey, Logan, no problem at all, and uh, it's awesome that you're doing this, and I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you for tuning in to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Please reach out to the guests that take the time to come on the show. They are a great resource for you, and it's nice to show the guests kind enough to join the show that they are appreciated. Also, please subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, the TuneIn app, or the SayTheDamnScore.com email update list. I'm Logan Anderson. Next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.